kids who grew up in the 1980s with computers like the C64, possibly the last generation to really straddle that analogue, digital, I would call it a transition, yeah, not a divide so much. We went on to be the adopters, you know, I'm one of them, and we went on to be the adopters, of course, of other important new technologies like the mobile phone, which arguably symbolise a move into on nearly always connected digital culture. Welcome to SHI's Innovation Heroes, a podcast exploring the people and businesses making a difference in our constantly disrupted world. I'm your host, Ed McNamara. I remember like it was yesterday, Christmas 1982. I ran downstairs to see if Santa had brought what I asked for. I scanned under the tree quickly for a large square package, and sure enough, there it was, wrapped with a bow with my name on it. I quickly grabbed it out from under the tree and begged my parents if I could open my present first. They agreed, and I tore it open. And there, in my lap, was my first ever home computer, the Commodore 64. Hi, I'm Ed McNamara, and you're listening to the latest episode of Innovation Heroes. This year marks the 40th anniversary of the Commodore 64, the microcomputer that revolutionized home computing and ushered in a whole new era of video gaming. At the time, the Commodore 64 was a big deal. You could hook it up to the TV if you wanted a bigger display terminal. It also came with a sound system, a floppy disk drive, an expansion port, and could connect to a keyboard and joystick, my personal favorite accessory. The nostalgia I feel for this computer is all too real. And that's why I've invited my next guest, Melanie Swowell, on the podcast today. Melanie is a professor of digital media heritage in the Center for Transformative Media Technologies at Swinburne University in Australia. Her research focuses on the creation, use, preservation, and legacy of video games and media artworks. She's also the author of Homebrew Gaming and the Beginnings of Vernacular Digitality and the leader of two digital media heritage preservation projects. Melanie's here to help me trace the history and evolution of computer gaming, beginning with the Commodore 64 and extending it outward to discuss the people and technology that shape digital gaming, why it's worth preserving, and why we have so much nostalgia for it. Welcome to the podcast, Melanie. Thanks so much for joining me. To start things off, can you tell me a bit more about your journey to becoming an expert in digital media heritage and what drove that interest for you? I fell into it, really. I went to New Zealand in 2004 for my first full-time academic job and I was asked by a museum there to look into uh, the history, culture and sort of science of digital gaming because I had a background having done research in that area before Mm -hmm. and I discovered that New Zealand had a remarkable early game history in the 1980s right across the arcade, console, home computer areas. And this wasn't covered in any of the game history books that were around then. And so I decided, well, someone's got to do it. And so I started working in that space, looking into really some of the ways in which technology distribution and production and consumption wasn't just the same around the world. Yeah. And were you surprised that nobody had researched that in the past because of the amount of hours that were spent and really discovering games in the 80s? It's a really new concept uh, culturally. I was. And yet I think sometimes it takes an outsider coming in to really notice that something is novel, something is different. So in the mid-2000s, it was really common to see what 
in other parts of the world would be considered rare arcade games just sitting in the corner of, you know, a burger bar. 80s, you know, Taito classics like Galaga. And this was just there and you could just play it. It wasn't considered unusual at all that it was made in Christchurch. And to me, that was a story crying out to be looked into. Got it. Makes perfect sense. I want to start the discussion with kind of a micro look at a piece of media heritage that I feel a great deal of nostalgia for, and that is the Commodore 64. Um, For listeners who aren't as familiar with it, can you explain a little bit about the Commodore 64 and how that sparked a kind of revolution in home gaming and and home computer usage? Sure. It was one of a number of early microcomputers that became available in the late 70s, early 1980s, across the world, really. Different machines were available in different jurisdictions. But in general, they were relatively affordable. You know, they were small compared to their mini computer peers. You know, it wasn't a refrigerator size. It's simply plugged into a monitor or even just the TV in the living room. And typically people would buy a book or pick up a magazine and it would teach them some basic coding. So it marked a shift really to computing being able to happen in the home and being not completely egalitarian, but certainly a whole lot more accessible to people who had, you know, $300 or $400 to spend on a computer. And of course, it's still very much beloved today. Other people will be more expert on the tech that's inside it and the particular chips. I know it's very popular with people who make sound. It was huge in the demo scene uh, in Europe and other places. And in Australia, where I am most familiar with, it was advertised as being both a machine for fun, but also educational. So it had a foot in that early marketing of tech for education. Parents were encouraged to buy one Mm -hmm. so their kids would be able to keep up, which was quite pervasive fear, of course, that was played on by marketers at the time about computers being so fancy and complex. And if you weren't keeping up, well, you might just fall behind. Right. So it really was one of those computers that marked the beginning of a whole new era in what computing meant, what digitality meant. And brought it home to a whole lot of people that previously had never had any experience with computing. Right. And 2022, for those of you out there who don't know, it is the 40th anniversary of the official release year of the Commodore 64. Um, And it's funny that you mentioned about the TV because I always saw that Commodore did offer a monitor with it, but I knew no one who had that monitor. And there would be the switch in the back of the television. For us, you would put it on channel three, flip that switch over, and it went from being aerial TV to immediately being hooked up to the computer. So it was could be hooked up to literally any TV that you could uh, hook that switch to. And what was amazing to me is that the joysticks back then, you could just get an Atari 2600 joystick and plug it into your Commodore and like it wouldn't even miss a beat. You know, it, it's things were just so compatible then. And I don't even know if that was by design or not, but as kids, we were thrilled. <laughs> yeah, I have um, some beautiful images of people that have been uploaded to my site for a project that I run of people in front of their computers in their homes back in the day. And there's a beautiful one of a young kid who's about eight or so with the joystick in front of the C64. (laughs) That would have been me for sure if I knew enough to take a picture of it back then, which we didn't because we didn't have a camera on every phone. But well, that's for another episode. So the Commodore 64 also emerged in a very transitional period in tech history. It took us from an analog way of life to a digital era. You know, in your view, how is the Commodore 64 kind of a symbol of that transition? transition. Well, it was a best-selling computer, but, you know, and perhaps partly because it was also very simple. Computing was simple then. It appealed to school kids and teens, amongst others. This was a a kind of low-end 
of microcomputers that were available. There was also a high end for the business end of town. But you got a book and it walked you through how to program in BASIC. You actually had to learn a few commands, even to load programs from tapes. But of course, many people, once they started to get into writing code, they would write their own programs. And so began an era of incredible digital creativity and productivity. Users were not simply using the computer. Many of them were also using it to create products, which is the frame that I adopt in my latest book on homebrew gaming. I think also as a symbol of the transition from analogue to digital, kids who grew up in the 1980s with computers like the C64, possibly the last generation to really straddle that analogue digital, I would call it a transition, yeah, not a divide so much. We went on to be the adopters, you know, I'm one of them, and we went on to be the adopters, of course, of other important new technologies like the mobile phone, which arguably symbolise a move into a nearly always on, nearly always connected digital culture. But later generations won't remember a moment before the digitisation of daily life. Right. And so the C64, I think, is a symbol of that transition. It still had that, um, you were still kind of by yourself because when you were on the computer, it was almost, we weren't talking to anybody else. There was no real internet for all of us, especially not through a Commodore 64. So it was actually, the irony is there was alone time <laughs> while you were on the computer, unless somebody was right there in the room with you. And it's interesting. I'll also thank Commodore 64. It's not something that a lot of us think about, but I learned the lifelong skill of being able to type at speed because of that machine. I had I had quite simply never sat at a keyboard before. And if it wasn't for that, I don't know when I would have learned it. So I watch my niece now who's nine and her thumbs move faster than I could even imagine from a texting perspective. But that did give us some lifelong skills and actually made us very comfortable in front of a computer one, but a keyboard two, which we don't even give second thought to. We learned it, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. Absolutely. I mean, these really domesticated, these machines really domesticated computing for people and really brought it home, you know, made it familiar. So with the show being about innovation heroes, I'd like to know a little bit more about the unsung hero of the digital gaming history. You know, how did these early gaming technologists help to push gaming forward and how did they pave the way for people who now work in tech? Yeah, well, as I mentioned, I've researched and written about homebrew gamers. So people who wrote their own games for their microcomputers, whether it was on Sinclair, Timex Sinclair, as you'd know it in North America, Microbee in Australia or Scandinavia, an Atari, an Apple or any one of the myriad other systems that were available in that moment. Some people were driven to figure out how to translate the game that they'd played in the arcade or on their friend's computer that worked on a different chip onto their brand of home computer. And of course, they weren't compatible at that point. There were lots of different variants of BASIC or some of them made up their own concept from scratch. And I have a case study in my book about a guy, Nick Morentes, whose parents owned a donut shop. And this donut kiosk was the inspiration for a game because sometimes the donut machine would go crazy and, you know, the fat would splurt and the dough would forming misshapen donuts. And so he took this and he adapted, you know, what we would know as a platformer from something like Donkey Kong and turned it into a range of, I think there might be 15 levels of you know, catastrophes that happen in the donut factory around, <laughs> you know, and the icing sugar sprinklers and all these different obstacles that you have to avoid in order to get up and shut the power off or whatever the conceit is. And so this hasn't actually received much attention at all in game history or computer history, what ordinary people did with home computers when they brought them home. And so I think they qualify really in terms of your focus on unsung heroes. Homebrew gaming, 
was remarkable and remarkable that it has kind of been overlooked. Some people were right in the scene. Other people claim to have never known that people were doing this. And so it's kind of interesting in terms of your previous comment about alone time. This was very much a solitary pursuit. Right. People might swap games with other people and they might try to sell it or they might send in their game to be published by a computer company that was publishing games or a magazine or something, but often they didn't and it was very local. And so it has flown under the radar. You know, computer historians have known this went on, but uh, some of them have thought, oh, well, it wasn't really very significant or the games weren't very good, so therefore why bother looking at them? But I think it's really a story that needed to be told. And it is the way in which, you know, to focus on the quality of the end products Mm -hmm. and to say that because the ones that, you know, they might have played weren't very good is kind of to miss the point because it was uh, the moment when a whole generation of people who later went into the tech industry, many of them, learnt what they were doing, learnt their way around computers, learnt that facility and that familiarity with the tech. And so it has a complex place in the history and the origins of the game industry. You know, some of the origin stories of this, you know, bigger than Hollywood, as the claim often is made, are really quite modest. They are about schoolboys and girls coming home after school and beavering away on their computer, trying to figure out how to solve the problem to make that sprite move across the screen or whatever it was that they were trying to get to happen. Right. And it's not so much the stuff of grandiose origin myths, but about people trying to make content that was meaningful to them and learn stuff along the way and realising that they could do it. And I think there's something there probably that will be for others to draw out about significance in terms of the tech industry. And I imagine many of your listeners might have had this kind of an introduction to computing themselves. Yeah, I agree. And it's funny, you mentioned about, quickly said about swapping games. I mean, years before anybody had ever heard of Napster, I can remember carrying the five and a quarter inch floppy disks to school and then you would swap with your friend, but then you had to go back home. And I'm sure it broke, I don't know how many different laws it must have in terms of like copyright in terms of, you know, you had there, I never had an original game disk ever. It was always going down three and four, how many generations, you know, on uh, the original. It's like somebody somewhere bought this game but by the time it got to the rest of us i mean they were just so freely shared ever wonder has there has it ever been calculated what's been lost from a royalties perspective on all that game swapping back then it was so simple back then uh, i think the simple answer is no <laughs> <laughs> fair enough fair enough certainly the gift economy was alive and well and was an important part of fostering people's exposure to to content but it differed also in different regions. I mean, I have a colleague in the Czech Republic, Jaro Svelch, who's written a great book called Gaming the Iron Curtain. Mm. And the context was completely different there. You know, the Old East didn't have copyright laws for starters. And it was, there was a culture of scarcity. And so, you know, distribution and piracy was sort of the norm before the fall of the Iron Curtain. Absolutely. I mean, it was a bit of the Wild West because I remember in particular one of my favorite games called Telengard was basically a game that was completely based on Dungeons and Dragons, you know, the old role-playing game that was not on the computer. And it had it used much the same statistics and you could play it for about three or four minutes and say, oh, wait, this is just D&D on the computer. And I had never heard that, you know, it was ever, you know, there was any copyright infringement or just a con, there's patent, I'm sure there was a patent somewhere that 
the, the inventors of the original D&D like had all of the statistics that were, you know, so commonly known to so many like role-playing gamers back then. And it was just had a very much Wild West feel and none of us thought twice about it. You also mentioned in terms of like some of the one story about the donut machine going crazy. It just occurred to me like how little explanation we really needed to actually dive into a game, right? So I think Donkey Kong might have been like the biggest story ever. And it was the King Kong story and the giant ape, you know, grabs the dame's own distress and goes up and you have to save her. But there were other games like Tapper where it's like, okay, I'm just pouring beers and sliding them down here for reasons I don't even have any idea why. And it's like, hey, this needs to be done. Uh, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> You mentioned one part about taking popular arcade games and making them available to people like me on the Commodore 64. A couple of games came to mind like Asteroids and Defender. I mean, I remember these two games. You would go to the arcade game and there were 10 plus buttons across all of those. And now today's gamers, they have those buttons in their hands now and they don't even think twice about it. Somebody like me, an old Gen Xer, I can't, I couldn't use one of today's controllers at all. But how difficult was it to get all of those mechanisms like out of the arcade and on a machine that, you know, had the capabilities to to deliver that with basically a joystick and a button. Yeah, and also the technical limitations of the hardware. So I'm not a tech person per se, but the literature that I review from that era talks a lot about people wanting and trying to create and claiming to have managed to create arcade quality graphics. Right. You know, the arcade <laughs> game was almost a genre of um, game that was being advertised at the time. If your game was being touted as having arcade quality graphics, you'd really done a great job with the programming. Right. Because the processes and everything, I guess, just weren't as fast as what you could get in the arcade. So it was both a challenge to create something that resembled a popular game on your machine, something that people were really driven to do, but they also were trying to maximise and squeeze the most out of the performance of their machine, of what was pretty primitive tech in comparison to what we would have on our standard laptop these days. And yeah, having the speed of gameplay, you know, be fast enough to deliver a satisfying experience was a big part of that. And so people would teach each other and share tips and tricks about how to optimize the code. And you might have started coding in basic, but then of course you would ascend through the levels of virtuosity and, mm -hmm. and coding prowess in order to get a better result, whether you were coding in assembly or machine language. That's when you were doing something that was out of the box. And I think one of the reasons that perhaps it's flown under the radar a bit is because people didn't really know how to talk about that. Hmm, right. And there were these emerging stereotypes at the time about computers being geeky and it not really being, you know, there, there being a kind of stigma around doing this kind of thing. And so some people didn't tell their friends what they were doing, even though they were pouring enormous amounts of time into writing these titles at home. You know, they didn't share what they were doing for fear that there would be stigma attached. So one of my informants talks about doing that. And yeah, he, he wanted to sort of fit in with the jocks at school. He was a sporty kid, but he also had these predilections towards writing stories and telling stories in a computer gaming medium. And there wasn't really a pigeonhole for such a kid to fit into. And so he just kept it to himself. And so I think this is one of the reasons that we haven't heard a lot. We haven't had a lot of discussion or representation in popular media of people who wrote their own games at home. It's a great point because you mentioned arcade quality graphics and 
nobody thought twice about going to an arcade. And at least here in the U.S., it was 25 cents a game. And you would actually pay for something that was, you know, in, in most people's opinion, was better than what you could get at home. So there was still a market to go and pop a quarter in and then have your friends gather around you and watch, you know, what level you, you could get to. And it's interesting that in that era, I remember VCR tapes. They were, as soon as things came, movies came out in VCRs, it was like, well, nobody's going to go to a movie theater anymore. And we've since learned that that's not the case. But it's amazing that they could still get teenagers and kids who were, you know, I'll say 10 plus to go and pay for something that in theory, they had something similar at home. So that, that social, it was almost like you went to the arcade and that was the social gaming there, but at home, very solitary. Yeah. I mean, there's something there about transitions, isn't there? And, you know, one doesn't, the arrival of new tech doesn't kill the other, or at least not immediately. There's a long, a longer tail than people often give credit for. I mean, I think your point about the sociality of the, the gaming arcade is spot on. You know, same with the cinema, uh, arguably. What else would I say? Yeah, I, I remember the one game at the arcade, that it was the first cartoon game, the Dragon's Lair, it was called. And the first kid on the block who could figure out how to do that would have just people gathered around watching what would happen. And it was, and it, it became an extremely social thing. And in my knowledge, that was the first time I ever saw a gamer who was like, you know, now esports has just taken it all to another level. But that, that could be the first kid that was like, he got past X level on Dragon's Lair and his name went through the neighborhood. <laughs> so I'm curious, are people still playing these early games and kind of how and where does that happen these days? Yes, they are. Retro gaming is a huge thing. Some people play on original hardware. There is still a market for 40-year-old machines, though, of course, mm. they're getting more fragile and more rare. Mm. But as people have gotten older and have got the disposable income, many people decide, right, I always wanted one of those machines and I couldn't have it when I was a kid. I'm going to get it now. You know, right. Retro gamers and retro computer enthusiasts are also really significant players, I would say, in the digital preservation field, often in the kind of unofficial digital preservation field. And that's because until recently, relatively recently anyway, software was typically put in the too hard basket by many in the field. You know, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to do it. And so they thought, oh, let's just start with the low hanging fruit. You know, we'll digitize newspapers. We'll, mm. you know, deal with data. But games, of course, are complex digital artifacts. And the challenges of obsolete media storage devices of how to get content off tapes, floppy disks, etc., and how to recreate the environment somehow that these required to run in. Well, emulators and so forth that will run on contemporary hardware are the result of retro gamers and other computer enthusiasts deciding to write them, you know, and come up with that answer to that problem. And they've really shown the rest of us the way. You know, they are the heroes of software preservation, in my opinion. They've invented the techniques and written the emulators. And really, it's because we know now something about, we don't know everything, but something about how to preserve some of these older, you know, vintage game titles that we can go on and start to actually make inroads in other fields, other areas of complex digital artifacts, different kinds of digital heritage that previously really hadn't had much work done at all. It's important because I, I think the assumption usually is that when technology improves, we just automatically remember how things have always been done. And it's not just in computing. I remember going on a, a walking tour of Notre Dame in Paris and they pointed to the stained glass in the window and they said, well, 
Nobody really knows how to make that color blue anymore. They can get really close, but it's just gone, and we don't know. It would never have occurred to me growing up that the video games I loved would one day become obsolete, which is why I'm so grateful for people like Melanie who are working to preserve them, as we would the Mona Lisa or prehistoric tools. So I was curious to know more about how video games are treated as digital artifacts and how they're being preserved. It's kind of important to, you know, not just assume that because things are always bigger, faster, you know, more efficient, things like that, that there's not something to protect about, you know, actual technology and that particular point in time. So I guess my point is we go to museums and see famous works of art and artifacts, but we don't typically think of preserving our digital artifacts. Can you just tell me your role in preserving video game history, why it's important to preserve games as cultural and digital artifacts? Well, I lead a team of researchers who work in conjunction with cultural institutions to ensure that there are collections of games and other works that are preserved, both for now and for the future, for exhibition purposes and also for researchers to be able to access. So we have a few projects on the go at the moment. Our game history and preservation project is called Play It Again, and we worked on 80s iteration a few years ago, which focused on games written for microcomputers in Australia and New Zealand in the 1980s. And we're now working on the second iteration of that, which is focused on 90s. And we're going back and picking up some games for consoles, for instance, for the Nintendo Entertainment System or the Famicom, as you'd know it, from the 80s that we missed in the first project. Right. And we also have, kind of going to the point that I was making earlier about retro gamers and enth other enthusiasts have shown us the way of how to preserve other kinds of content, we can apply those techniques that we use on games to now media arts. So the work that people, artists were doing in the 90s often, or even the 80s, you know, when they got excited about the potentials of microcomputing and the ability to create their own stuff and write their own code and create generative works or perhaps for the Amiga or something else. When Director came out, um, Macromedia product, uh, it led to an explosion of artists creating EDROM art. Mm. And this hasn't featured really very much at all in collections hmm. in Australian institutions up until very recently. And so I've spearheaded this effort to really create a consortium of cultural institutions that have taken significant collections from media arts organisations, you know, those grassroots organisations that were out there in the community organising exhibitions, supporting artists, and they've found jurisdictionally appropriate homes. And because people don't often have skilled software preservationists on the staff right. of these organisations. We've grouped together and we're working collaboratively between the academy and these cultural institutions in order to, you know, float everybody's boat right. so that we are making sure that the skills are being taught and being learned by, you know, the conservationists, the librarians, the archivists, etc. in those organisations. And everybody's at different levels. Some people have great skills, some people starting from scratch and that's fine but it's actually quite urgent that those professionals have those skills in the 21st century because the problem of preserving born digital content isn't going to go away it's only going to become more urgent and more important you know if we are to preserve something of 
our digital heritage for the future. Absolutely. And it's important because the nostalgia I have, I'm sure that many others experience, you know, for older games and technology, I think it's very real, that nostalgia. And given your research, I'm curious to know what you think that feeling, that nostalgic feeling is about and why do we have this longing for a simpler tech? Well, yeah, nostalgia, um, often it's a longing I think for simpler times, or it's put down to that anyway, and for what mm-hmm. we enjoyed when we were kids. But it's also, I think, about cultural memory. Nostalgia is really another term for memory. And that's important, especially when we're talking about digital artifacts, because you can't really understand what a technology like a game meant to people just from the artifact itself. You know, even if it's running, you know, think about a blinking cursor in a text adventure. Mm, (laughs) It really doesn't hold the same allure for someone in the 2020s as it did when computers were new in the 1980s. (laughs) You know, people look at it and that just doesn't translate across the decades. Right. And so you really have to ask the people who were there what the significance of this was? What did it mean to them? And so we think in our project, we really place great importance on popular memory and on understanding what the place of games and other early digital media of this period was. We've actually built a website that we think of as a portal called the Popular Memory Archive, where we invite people to share their memories of playing games, creating games, etc., and related artifacts, and upload their images, etc., and their stories. Because these are the things that really carry that memory forward, even if they're just, you know, anecdotes. Um, There's been some beautiful artifacts uploaded. You know, people can have a look at this if they go to our website, just playitagainproject.com and they go to the contribute section. There's some really lovely photographs, as I said earlier, of people's home computer setups, but also fan art and images from, say, computer meetings, swap meets Mm -hmm. or user group meetings. This was really rare, but occasionally people did take photographs at these things and some of them have come out of the bottom drawers and out of the photograph albums and been uploaded and it's a really lovely kind of nascent collection that gives us a bit more insight into this era and what this technology meant for people. I've been talking so much about nostalgia. Like what happens when you show, you know, retro games to people who are young now, who are, you know, that, you know, that nine to nine to 12 age, I'll just pick that age group, you know, but maybe even younger than that. It's a great point. We have a partnership with the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Uh, They're our one of our partners on this Play It Again 2 project. And we've got six games installed on the floor of their main exhibition at the moment from the 90s that are being emulated. And we call the project Play It Again because, you know, for obvious reasons. But <laughs> right. a school student actually came along and played the games through and then wrote a review, which is now on the ACME website. <laughs> and they called it, uh, you know, something like Play It Again for the first time. <laughs> nice. And, you know, they had no exposure of course, to games from the 1990s. And so something that you and I would think of as relatively recent, like um, Xena, a game clickable multipath adventure movie, this interesting kind of composite form, they're marvelling at how clunky it looks and the polygon count and, you know, how different it is to today's gaming graphics. But they're also saying, you know, it's surprisingly responsive and it's a good story. So, you know, we forget that for teenagers of today, they've got no idea about much of this stuff. And they really are interested in media history. You know, I grew up watching the old Hollywood black and whites, you know, and Busby Berkeley and all that stuff. It was interesting to me then. There's no reason why today's generation isn't going, today's teenagers aren't going to be interested in the games from the 90s and the 80s. I think they definitely are. And it's, you know, 
it begs so many questions or it raises so many questions for them about how technology has changed in that time. So I really think, you know, to go back to our point earlier about transition from analogue to digital, it's really important to keep alive both content and memories from this period so that current and future generations will be able to have some idea, reconstruct some sense of what it might have been like. Absolutely. And at the end of the day, you know, fun is fun. And if somebody's having fun doing something, they're not really too worried about. We were really forgiving, you know, in a lot of areas and it was because it was fun and, uh, and that was good enough. My last question, I can't let you go without asking, um, through your research, do you have a favorite game that you've found? Do you have one that stands out among all of these, all these older games? Look, you're going to laugh, but I'm not really much of a gamer. <laughs> Fair enough. This is unusual, I know, but um, it's purely scholarly interest for me. And so what I really love is hearing people's stories about what they did and the games that they wrote and looking at their artifacts. And, you know, I've printed some of them in my book. There's some beautiful photographs in colour of people's home computer setups and also um, artwork of, uh, you know, graph paper sprites actually on the cover of Nick Morenti's Donut Dilemma. And, you know, these for me really sum up the period and that incredible flourishing of creativity that the entry of the micro into the home sparked. Absolutely. I'd imagine you're going to have to stay impartial so you can continue to document this for us on a from historic perspective. So I appreciate that. Melanie, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me here today. For people who want to know more about you and your work, you've mentioned a couple of websites, but just so that we have it, where can they reach out to you to learn more? My current project is Play It Again Project. Dot com and the media arts project that I mentioned is arma aama.net.au and I'm on Twitter at Melswell. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time today. And I really, really appreciate you being here and taking this this trip down memory lane, at least for me anyway. Thanks so much, Ed. It's been great. Thanks to Melanie and her colleagues, the games and technology of my past, of our collective past, will be preserved, maintained, and even promoted to younger generations for years to come. Stories like these are reminders that innovation is not the sole driver of technological evolution. People are. Without the passionate work of digital gaming developers, engineers, and entrepreneurs, we would not even be able to dream about a multi-billion dollar gaming and esports industry. And without people like Melanie, we would not be able to remember what we love so much about the games of our past. Thanks for listening to this episode of Innovation Heroes. Every two weeks, we meet with the unsung heroes who are radically changing the way we live and work in order to tackle the major challenges facing transformational businesses. So tune in to our next episode in two weeks. You won't want to miss it. If you enjoyed this episode, then consider being our hero. Smash that like button and subscribe button to Innovation Heroes wherever you listen to your podcasts. Innovation Heroes is a Pilgrim content production in collaboration with SHI. Our producers are Brian Brusis, Christina Clark, and Tobin Dalrymple, with production assistance from Amanda Sheffer-Cavanaugh, and Ryan Wetter.